I'm Lou Eisen, and this is the new 2023 edition of Ring Talk. And uh, I want to thank the producer, Eric, for putting that wonderful picture of Gavilan and Johnny Saxton. Uh, great fight. Um, people are probably looking at me now thinking, boy, you look tired or hungover. I'm old. This is just the way that I look, uh, unfortunately. you know. In fact, I was telling uh, our producer that the movie Cinderella Man, which I was in, was on last night. And in that movie, I had a double. And for certain scenes, for whatever, but I, it was never used, but he had to be there all the time. He looked just like me. And I said to him, what a bad break for you. I mean, I have to look like me because I was born this way. But you, you could have done something different. Anyways, today we're talking about a fight. Um, uh, some things I'll say may upset people, but I, I want to explain from the outset uh, one thing in particular. This fight, the Kid Gavilan fight, uh, the Cuban hawk Gerardo Gonzalez, born January 20, January 6, 1926. Was lucky enough to meet him at the Hall of Fame, fought Johnny Saxton. Uh, this was a mobbed up fight. Both fighters were mob fighters. Mob fighters didn't in of themselves say, hey, I like to be with the mob. I like them to control me didn't work that way. The mob chose you. They came up, put a gun to your head or your manager's head and said, we're your new manager. Nothing you can do about it. So you're going to do what we tell you to do or we'll kill you. And people would say, well, why didn't the boxing commissions, the, the state athletic commissions do anything? Because they had mob guys on it too. And the mob would say to the head of the New York State Athletic Commission or other people there or Philadelphia, which was a really mobbed up commission, uh, yeah, you can rule against us and do things like that, but you still got to make it from your office to your car to your home. And it's unlikely that'll happen. So there was really nothing happened. It, it wasn't broken up until they went after them in court. And then they were put away. And even still, while in prison, Frankie Carbo, the number one mobster who controlled boxing, uh, still ran things. So uh, this fight... Uh, so when I say mobbed up fighter, it's not by the fighter's choice. And these two fighters are mobbed up. And as you'll see later on, they both ended up indigent paupers. They were, it, it's sad. But so Kid Gavilan at that time, this fight took place in uh, Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Convention Center. And Gavilan was the world champion. And Gavilan had won the world title from uh, Johnny Honeyboy uh Bratton, great fighter, Johnny Bratton. So he won recognition as the welterweight champion by the, from the New York State Athletic Commission and what was known as the NBA, the National Boxing Association. So from the time Dempsey, a couple of years after Dempsey won the title, he won it in 1919. But 1922, 23, the NBA starts and they run boxing in the United States. And it wasn't until the early 60s that factions from that split off into the other criminal, to the criminal organization, excuse me, World Boxing Council, which stands for We Be Criminals, and WBA, which stood for Without Brains Attached. So uh, he beats Bratton for the title, and they say, well, you're not really the champion because the European champion is Charlie Humez. But in the States, uh, who cares? Humez moves up to middleweight. So doesn't really matter about who's the European champ. And then they said to Gavlin, well, you'll get full world recognition when you fight uh, and beat the best welterweight on the planet, Billy Graham. So this was another fight that I'm not sure if I spoke about this before. It's in my book. But this was a mobbed up fight. 
this was their third fight. Graham won the fight in New York, but he was told beforehand that unless you knock Gavilan out, you're not going to be the world champion. And, and Graham's manager, Irving Cohen, um, who was around boxing to the 1990s, just him and Graham refused to do business with the mob. So Graham beat Gavilan, but didn't get the decision. Now, it's a double-edged sword being a mob fighter. Gavilan's like, great, because any close decisions I get, they come to me. And, um, oh, this is great. We already have some people on. Uh, Hyphy, is that the is that the correct way to pronounce your name? Uh, if not, I apologize. I don't have knowledge of this fight, but I love hearing about the classic fight, so I'm all ears consuming the knowledge. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for watching. Um, so, and by the way, uh, uh, when I was young, my men I wanted to be, I was boxing. I boxed when I was younger. My mentor, Angelo Dundee, said to me, you can't, he was like a father to me, um, you're, you're pretty good, but pretty good gets you killed. You have to be, you have to be special. And he said, your head is so big that the other guy could hit you without you leaving the corner. So that was the end of my boxing career. Anyways, not important. Let's get back to the fight. So we have Johnny, the great Johnny Bratton. Uh, if you get a chance, read Corey Erdman's article on him. It's a wonderful article by a great writer, broadcaster, and Bratton was just a, a phenomenal fighter. So we have Gavilan. Gavilan was born in Cuba and grew up very poor, grew up in the sugarcane fields. Now there's a myth about Gavilan. When you watch the Sugar Ray Leonard Roberto Duran rematch and, and Ray Leonard did the bolo punch and then wound up to do it and then hit Duran with the other hand, they said he's doing Kid Gavilan's bolo punch. Gavilan, um, I'm glad you liked the story, thank you. Gavilan um, didn't invent the bolo punch. He certainly popularized it, but the bolo punch was around in boxing for a good hundred years, if not more, before Kid Gavilan did it. Kid Gavilan did it on TV. Kid Gavilan probably sold as many, if not more, TV sets than Milton Berle uh, in the 1950s. Gavilan, you know, had a, a great record of 100 and something like 138 fights, but he won 108, but he, he 30 losses and I think six draws. But he, he, he was not a knockout puncher. He just had 26 uh, knockouts. And the ironic thing is Billy Graham had almost the same identical record. So when Gray, when Gavilan's got to defend his title against Saxton, he knows if he doesn't knock him out, he's not going to win. Now, there were several ways we knew the fight was fixed. On the set of Cinderella Man, the reason I mentioned that, I got a chance to spend time with people that were there. So Angela Dundee was there, um, Norman Mailer. And I really spent a lot of time with the wonderful Bud Schoberg. Bud Schoberg wrote, on the waterfront. Uh, he wrote The Harder They Fall with Bogart. He wrote the book I read in high school, What Makes Sammy Run. He was he was sitting in the fourth row when Dempsey knocked out Willard. He was sitting there with his father, who was head of Paramount Pictures. And he said to me, how do we know that the Philadelphia fight between defending champion Gavlin and challenger Johnny Saxton was fixed? Because he said the odds were two and a half to one, which was significant, favoring Gavlin. But just before the fight, less than an hour before the fight, the odds went to even money. And because of that, all that money on Saxton came in. So what did the bookies do? They, they, they erased the boards. They said all bets are off and they refused to take any new bets. In other words, the bookies themselves knew 
this fight is fixed. The mob is looking to kill us here and clean us out. We're not going to allow this to happen. And so because Gavilan knew beforehand that he wasn't going to win, he was told by Frankie Carbo, either you knock him out or you lose. So nothing he can do. And so right before the fight, it was supposed to happen at Connie Mack Stadium. It's delayed. The fight's delayed because, because he said he had a broken hand. So or an injured hand. So they delayed it for a month. And then a month later, they're going to have the fight, and they can't, because now he's come down with the mumps. And uh, basically, Carbo, Mr. Gray, the underworld criminal czar of boxing, said to Gavilan, listen, you have one more illness. It'll be the last illness you ever have. You have to get in that ring and fight him. Blinky Palermo, his henchman, um, managed, he managed... Um, Johnny Saxton, but he also had a large piece of, of uh, Gavilan. And people say, well, you can't manage both fighters in the fight. You can if you're the mafia. And who was going to do anything about it? The state commissions knew it. But as I said before, what were they going to do? They were going to come out against it and risk being killed by the mob. It wasn't worth it to them. And a lot of the people that worked at the state commission, this wasn't a full-time job for them anyways. So like, I don't need the grief. You want to manage both fighters? What do I care? doesn't bother me. And so Sac Gavilan and Saxton, Saxton was trained by Bill Miller, uh, the great Bill Miller. And I think Miller was the guy who went on to train. I believe it's the same Bill Miller. I have to ask Jackie Cowan uh, that trained um, James Tony. So they paid Miller 10 grand. Carbo paid him 10 grand to get lost. You know, you stick with him for two more years and then that's it. And that's what happened. They moved him out. They put in Blinky Palermo. Um, one thing, Saxton wasn't really a popular guy in boxing. Saxton was a pretty good fighter. He was a good fighter. I'm not going to denigrate him as a fighter, but he, he was finished by the time he was 28 and suffering from severe dementia at that age. So he took a lot of punishment. He had a great trainer, one of the all-time greatest, in Whitey Bimstein. He didn't have great balance, though, and he took too many shots to get punches in. And when you don't have great balance, you absorb most of the shots through your chin. And so Saxton would publicly, when he'd be interviewed on TV or by the newspapers, would say, I love, I love Mr. Palermo. He's been great to me. I've made a fortune off him. I've done this and I've done that. And of course, later on, you he, you know, he said, listen, I supposed to get, get 70, 80 grand for the title fight plus an extra 50 grand because it's on TV. And my check was for $2,000. And that was it. I asked Mr. Palermo, why don't I get more? And he pistol whipped me. So the only person that stood up to Palermo and Carbo, there were three in, in the whole history. Archie Moore and uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, but he gave in to them because when Robinson retired um, for three years in the 1950s, he came back, but all his businesses had been looted by his family and friends. So he had to do business with James Norris and the IBC and, and Carbone and Palermo and Basilio. And I, I guess I would say Lamana, but Lamana did give in to them. Here's the thing about working with the mob. Lamana gave in. He lost the fight to Blackjack Billy Fox on purpose. Get a shot at the world middleweight title. Still had to wait three years. Still had to give him 25 grand in cash. So there's no guarantee if the mob says, if you lose this fight, you'll get a title fight. So Saxton got very little of any money from any of his fights. And it, it's, it's quite sad.
So uh, before he wins the world title, Kid Gavilan, who was managed by Fernando Bolito. And the thing about Gavilan, of course, was Bolito had to contact Angel Lopez. Angel Lopez was a, was a, uh, um, um, a Latino mobster working in New York who was associated with Frankie Carbo. Uh, Gavilan did well in Cuba starting up, you know, and then he moved to the United States and he did well. And his mob connections moved out, helped him move up quicker. He fought Sugar Ray Robinson twice. First time he lost a 10 round unanimous decision and a non title fight in 48. And then in 49, he lost a 15 round unanimous decision for the welterweight world title in 1949. But his luck was changing because Robinson, as we know, in 51, moved up to middleweight. And then he beat uh, Jake LaMotta, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, February, February 14th, 1951, to win the world middleweight title. And so we have Billy Graham uh, beats him but doesn't get credit for it. And then uh, Gavilan had a lot of interesting things. I met Gavilan, by the way, years ago at the Hall of Fame. Gavilan was living in Florida, and he was rooming with Bo Jack, the former lightweight champion. And it was a real contrast seeing them sit beside each other because Gavlin had a three-piece suit. No, he's from Cuba, living in Florida. It was blistering hot in New York. And, you know, he's got a three-piece suit, nice, beautiful, crisp white shirt, nice tie. And, you know, when you go to meet him and Angelo introduced me and he stands up and he bows and he shakes your hand, didn't speak a word of English. And he's dressed, you know, like a model. And then beside him is his roommate, Bo Jack, who didn't speak a word of Spanish. And Bojack, as always, wearing chinos, running shoes, and a white T-shirt. So it was interesting. One would say something, and the other one would go, ah, like that. But they, they were friends. So Gavilan, in 1952, February 4th, in Miami, he fights Bobby Dykes. And Dykes was a good fighter. And this is a, a very important fight because it's the first uh, interracial fight in Florida ever. And... That was a rare thing to, for that to happen, and it opened the doors. Um, that's a whole other story. Anyways, he won by a split decision. Now, the fight that's similar to the Saxton fight, and I'm going to really get into that in a sec, is on September 18, 1953, Gavlan defeats Carmen Basilio by a split decision to retain the title. It's a split decision. Basilio beat him, but Basilio would never do business with the mob. Basilio, that's the one guy I wanted to mention. Basilio had no fear of the mob. And so, you know, the, the character Marlon Brando plays in On No Waterfront, Terry Malloy, where he says to Lee J. Cobb, Johnny Friendly at the end, you take away your guns, you take, you know, you take away your heaters and your henchmen and your goons and you're nothing. And I'm glad what I did to you. It wasn't based on Basilio, but what Schobert said it certainly could have been, you know, and Basilio, his managers would give part of their fee to the mob to get him fights, but he wasn't going to give them a dime. And he, he, you know, he, he looked at them and just said, not going to happen. You're not going to scare me. I'm not going to back down from you. So Basilio wins, but he doesn't get the decision. And then um, Gavlin challenges Carl Bobo Olsen for the world middleweight title October 20th, 1954. And he loses by a majority decision. It's a good fight. Gavlin was a very quick, skilled fighter, but Olsen was a physically bigger man. Uh, on October 20th, 1954, this is the date. Gavlan defends the world welterweight title against Johnny Saxton. Saxton's manager was Blinky Palermo. 
And they knew before the fight, there were so many rumors before the fight that the fight was fixed. In fact, 20 out of 22 sports writers at ringside said, you know, Gavilan won the fight. Now, it was a boring fight. For the first eight rounds, nothing happened. And then from 9 to 15, Gavlin thoroughly dominated him. And it's, it's, it's a frustrating thing. Uh, you know, you can see the tape of a fight. You can see clips of the fight. There is a couple. There's one tape I saw, but it was a bit fuzzy, and there was no sound. But um, Saxton, you know, it's just a, a blueprint for everything that should not happen to a person in boxing, but does. He was born in Newark, New Jersey, July 4th, 1930. Um, he was bounced around from relative to relative as a child. He was sent to the colored orphan asylum in the Bronx, eventually a foster mother in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and Bedford-Stuy, Bed-Stuy, do or die, took him in and um, uh, in Brooklyn. And then he started taking up amateur boxing. He did well in the police athletic leagues, the PAL leagues. He won uh, 31 of 33 amateur bouts, two national AAU championships. This was at lightweight, not welterweight. And he won a Golden Gloves title. And then in 1949, he turned pro under Bill Pops Miller. And later, Miller, as I said, was bought out by Blinky Palermo. Now, when you're bought out, it's not like you sit down and negotiate. It's he puts a gun to your head and says, I'm going to give you 10 grand, get lost or die. And that's that's it. So Saxton outpoints Gavilan to win the fight. And it was very controversial. And after the fight, Gavilan took a risk because he said he was given the business. He said, you people know what I'm talking about. You know what happened to me. I won this fight and it was taken away. That's the problem with working with the mob. He was a mob fighter. He doesn't get to decide when he wins and when he doesn't win. You know, it's, it, unless he can knock the guy out or unless it's so one-sided. Gavlan's abilities, he won the fight. He wasn't the fighter he once was. He was still a very good fighter. And the mob wanted to hedge their bets in case they couldn't. It came up against a non-aligned fighter, which made no sense because if you weren't aligned with the mob, you weren't going to get a title shot to begin with. And so Gavilan um, is just beyond furious. He can't believe it, and he's complaining to reporters. And uh, Bud Schilbert told me it was an open secret. The press, he said, most fights were fixed then, but this fight was. It was well known that this fight, in particular. Was fixed. I just have a couple of notes here. So what happens to Saxton is he loses the title by knockout to Tony DeMarco, April 1st, 1955, in Boston. And then, of course, he goes to Chicago, and this fight, it's even a dirtier fight. He fights Carmen Basilio and, and March 1456. Basilio beats the hell out of him, and they give the fight, the mob gives the fight to, to, um, to Saxton. And you know the mob gives the fight to him because there's Blinky Palermo in Saxton's corner. He's laughing. He's relaxed. And then when Saxton beat Gavilan, they had a party in Frankie Carvel's hotel suite later on. Mobsters from all over the country. You know, you'd think the FBI would get involved. But at this point, the the um, homosexual head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, what, you know, didn't want to admit that the mafia existed. And he didn't want to have to take them on, apparently, because Hoover was getting tips on fixed racehorse or horse races. So Basilio was furious that Saxton had, you know, had had given uh, been given the decision. So it, they had a rematch. And after he lost in Chicago, there was a riot. People knew it was a fixed fight. And 
when they asked Basilio what happens in the rematch, and he said, I'm just going to kill him. And they fought in Syracuse. The problem was he wasn't – Saxton wasn't allowed to fight in New York because of his mob underworld ties. But, but uh, Julius Helfen, the chairman of the New York State Athletic Commission, said they can fight in Syracuse. His hometown, well, his hometown was, was uh, Canastota, where the International Boxing Hall of Fame is. But they can fight in Syracuse because that's the only place he's going to get a fair deal. So he fights him, knocks him out in nine rounds, and the rematch knocks Saxton out in two rounds. Now, the main gist of this podcast, of course, is the Saxton-Gavilan fight. But it's the arc of both men's careers. Saxton got a lot of gifts because the mob protected him. What he didn't get, what he didn't get was the money. And so the mob didn't really care about them, Saxton or, or Gavilan. So the fact that Saxton was finished by 28 and broke, what do they care? You know, meant nothing to them. Get rid of him. Get someone else. And uh, after he lost to Basilio and got knocked out, um, uh, he lost three of his last four fights. And Saxton retired at the age of 28. You know, so that's hard to fathom. Uh, he was adrift. He was homeless. He was broke. Uh, um, there was an article in, in the New York newspaper, April 7th, 1959. Uh, he'd been confined to a mental hospital. He'd been arrested a second time in a burglary, second time in a month. And he was uh, placed in the state mental hospital at Ancora, New Jersey, because while he was in jail, in Atlantic City jail for the robbery, he tried to hang himself, unfortunately. It's a sad story. He'd been in charge of attempting to rob a variety store, and this was in Queens, New York. You know how much he, he took? $6.20. That was it. Then he broke into someone's apartment in Jamaica, Queens, and stole uh, a $100 coat. Petty. Petty thievery. And at the time... The um, medical examiner for the state of New Jersey declared him punch drunk and legally insane. Uh, he was 28. The only other fighter I saw deteriorate, no, I didn't see, but I read about deteriorating like that, that quickly was Ad Wolgas, the, the guy, the double knockout, you know, with Mexican Joe Rivers. So uh, in 1912. So Wolgast was done by 25, 26. He was pugilistic at dementia in the extreme. This is what Saxton had. Johnny Saxton didn't know who he was by the time he was 28, 29, didn't know where he was. He knew nothing. And that was unfortunate, it was sad, but that was the story. And, and this is a guy who we hear nothing about today. Um, he, get, he, he had an interesting boxing style. There isn't anyone around today that fights like him. I can't compare him to another fighter. Saxton wasn't an attacker or a counterpuncher. Saxton would go in the ring and he would just leap at you throwing punches and then leap back and then wait for you to do something and then leap in again. So it was a very odd fighting style. He could punch. You know, he had something like 26 knockouts. I have it written down here uh, how many knockouts he had. Uh, yeah, Saxton had 55 wins, nine losses, two draws, 21 KOs, and 55 fights. Not bad. And uh, Kid Gavilan had 108 wins, 30 losses, six draws, 28 KOs. 
What makes the fight with Gavilan interesting is the scoring. So in the scoring, the referee was mobbed up, Pete Pantaleo, and the judges have been leaned on. Nate Lopinson and Jim Mina um, have been leaned on by the mob for this fight. So uh, referee had it 9-6 Saxton. So you you give everyone there agreed that that uh, um, Gavilan won at least at least eight rounds, eight to nine rounds. You know, eight six one would have been a better score, Gavilan. But this guy had it nine six, and the judge, another judge, um, Nate. That was the referee, Nate Lopinson, had an eight six Saxton one even. And then Judge Jemina had it the closest, seven six Saxton with two even. I mean, this this was a joke. It wasn't remotely close. Gavlin won the fight by a large, uh, by a wide margin, and this is why he was so upset and pissed off. But then, you know, other than Basilio, no one could come out and publicly accuse him of because it wasn't really in your best interest. He didn't get. He got very little money from any of his fights, Johnny Saxton, and and that's the sad thing. You know, to embark on this as a career, as an impoverished young African American, which because of the endemic racism in the country, and the little schooling he had, he had very little hopes. But he was good athletically in boxing, and never got any of the money. And Palermo didn't care. Palermo and Frankie Carbo were the worst kind of virulent uh excremental scum that boxing knew i mean they only madden was the original guy who controlled boxing for the mob but they took it notches higher or deeper i guess you could say or lower with the way they treated fighters so one question you get asked is you know what is this fighter mobbed up rocky marciano that guy this guy they were all mobbed up not by their own choice Marciano didn't have any fixed fights. They weren't mobbed up by their own choice. If you were going to be in boxing in the 50s, you had to deal with the mob. It's the same as when I've said this before. When people say, well, Frank Sinatra played mob on clubs. All clubs from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 60s were mob-owned. They were the only ones with enough disposable cash to open and run these clubs. Therefore, if you did it, you had to, you know, you had to play their clubs. And Saxton, it was sad. I mean, he he eventually, uh, Angelo Dundee and other people helped him move. He, they found him in New York City in the 90s. He was living in squalor in an apartment with no electricity. And he wound up in a retirement home in Lake Worth, Florida. And they they diagnosed him again with, with the, this was the diagnosis, not pugilistic, a dementia, very severe pugilistic dementia and unfortunately very few of any fighters ever get out of boxing unscathed i love the sport with all my heart but this is the nature of the beast and so saxton you know uh he lived to i think 76 uh, 78 years of age and i i'm sorry i never got to meet him but I'll tell you one thing. I, I was watching a couple hours ago on YouTube. Uh, there's a four-minute video on him, and you hear him being interviewed. And this is one of the things that almost moves me to tears when talking about these fighters and fighters from a long time ago and, and his, historical figures like Abraham Lincoln or Napoleon. It really gives you an impression of the man when you hear their voice. 
And so hearing Johnny Saxton talk, you could hear the, 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 how beaten down he was. You could hear the, you could hear the poverty. You could hear the sadness in his voice. You know, I got nothing, nothing. You know, I was told I get more for fighting on TV that it's threatened to kill me if I ask. And that was the sad story of Saxton. He, he had some good wins. He wasn't a bad fighter, but he just, he, he came along at an unfortunate time in boxing. You're right, Hyphy, almost all of their careers ended in less than ideal circumstances. So Gavilan uh, was a great fighter and he burned out early. Um, Gavilan uh, had a lot of fights and as I said, he was a really flashy guy. He was an interesting guy to speak with, spoke with his hands a lot when he spoke, animated, but he was forever bitter. And so was Saxton about the way he was treated. And of course, when you're like Johnny Saxton or Gavilan, when you're bitter, like Saxton and homeless and broke, what does it matter if you badmouth the mob? They don't care at that point. The mob didn't make a secret of it. Everyone knew the fight with Gavilan was fixed in Philadelphia. It, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, by accident. In fact, back at that time, there's two writers that I adored, Bud Schoberg and Dan Parker. And these were guys that had the had the cojones to stand up to the mob and call them out in print. Now, Schoberg got threatened a lot. Dan Parker got threatened once. They couldn't really threaten Dan Parker, not because he was a New York writer, but because he was 6'5", 275 pounds. And Dan Parker uh, stormed the beaches on D-Day in Normandy, Omaha Beach. So for these, for these mob scumbags to think they could actually intimidate him, they were way out of their league. And they came to his house to, you know, to threaten him and he answered the door with an M1 carbine. So you weren't gonna back off Dan Parker. He wasn't gonna give, you know, he's ready to fight them at any time. And he wrote a great thing in, in um, which I have here. I wanted to read part of it to you. Oh yeah, in uh, Sports Illustrated. Um, the, it was called, uh, if you get a chance, Dan Parker, look him up. This was in Sports Illustrated, 1955-54, I believe it was. Uh, the commissioner was also mobbed up, Frank Wiener. He was the person, what a, an appropriate name, for the commissioner of um, Philadelphia Boxing Commission. And this is what Dan Parker wrote then. This took a lot of uh, guts to write this and openly accuse the mob and name them by name. You know, I was always told you don't do that. You could say, you could make generalities, but Angela Dundee said never be specific if you're calling out these kind of people because they don't take kindly to it. For instance, uh, Ali Liston, first fight, Liston had its gloves loaded with Monsell's solution, which blinded Ali. Angelo knew it, but he didn't say it. He said it was probably just an accident, you know, and Monsell's solution was already outlawed. But I said to Angelo, you knew they did it on purpose. He said, right, but what do I gain by bad-mouthing the mob? You know, how does it benefit me? It doesn't. And because of his great brother, Chris, Chris said, just keep your mouth shut. Atley won the world title, that's all that counts. So this is what Dan Parker wrote about Gavilan and Saxton. He said, if Commissioner Frank Wiener were an ostrich instead of an eel, he'd be able to save face by burying his head in quicksand after what happened in Philadelphia's convention hall Wednesday night to once again disgrace his home city 
and his administration of boxing in it. That Philadelphia in recent years has become a dumping ground. What he meant was a toilet where people can sit and defecate for fistic garbage was advertised wherever television carried the Gavilan Saxton welterweight title fight, which was a stinker. And as a city in which it is possible, it showed that it's a city in which it is possible for a hometown hoodlum like Blinky Palermo. He named him to job a world champion out of his title for the benefit of one of his own fighters, Johnny Saxton. It's the fault of no one but Frank Wiener, Pennsylvania's thoroughly undistinguished administrator of boxing. You don't name Frankie Carvo publicly, even though people know, you know, fans might not know, but people in boxing did. It wasn't safe to do that. And then he says, there's dishonor among thieves. Without Wiener's approval, Blinky Palermo, and this is what he said, a hoodlum with a malodorous record in and out of the prize ring could not hold a manager's license. You don't name Blinky Palermo Frankie Carvo. Anyone who did would have got killed. They didn't go after Dan Parker. Dan Parker was sort of indemnified, not only from his heroics in World War II, but the fact that he was one of the most well-known writers in boxing. Most people considered him to be the most consistently brilliant sports writer in the United States, and I agree with that. He said the fact that Palermo was able to steal outright the title on this occasion was most appropriate because he also stole Johnny Saxton, the fighter from whom he he perpetrated this outrage. Bill Miller, a decent old-time African-American trainer, he said Negro at the time, developed Saxton as an amateur, and when he wasn't making much progress with him as a pro, Bill Miller was forced to tie up with Palermo because he was given to understand without the mob connection, Saxton goes nowhere. So within when the two-year contract Miller entered into with the blink expired, poor old Bill, who fought, taught Saxton everything he knows, was kicked out of the partnership as if Blinky was saying, well, you're, you know, um, well, I made a mistake here. I apologize for that. So I don't know where I am now in my rant, but, um, uh, yeah. Okay. Now is Blinky, sorry. Blinky and uh, Plymouth and Johnny Saxton are there in the ring waiting for the decision. And what Parker said was, uh, at the announcement of the decision in their corner Wednesday night after 15 rounds, 15th round, which Gavilan staggered Saxton several times, swarmed all over him, a beautiful beatific, beatific smile spread over the kindly hoodlum's face, Plymouth's face, reminiscent of the displayed, of that displayed by the fabled uh, cat who ate the canary. It was as if Blinky was saying, doesn't matter, Johnny, you're on your feet, so you're going to win. And the story buzzed around in advance was that Gavilan would have to knock his men out, as I said before, to win the title. When the verdict came down for Saxton, it was unanimous, and Blinky was just laughing like it was nothing. It, um, his expression of complete confidence before the announcement came was rather revealing. And he said, as, as to which was worse, this is what Parker's saying, what was worse, the decision or the fight itself would take some pretty fine hair splitting to decide. Blinky the Just, Frankie Carbo's pinup boy, thought everyone was everything was just Jim Dandy. He said, "What Frankie Carbo, Gavilan's Goombar, that's what he called him, Goomba, with whom the Blink dined at Dempsey's Monday night. They were actually seen dining together at Dempsey's. Dempsey's hotel was where all these mobsters met to cut up 
and decide who would win in, in, in prize fights. Dempsey was asked years later, why didn't you do anything about it? And Dempsey said, are you nuts? I'm one guy. I speak out against it. They'll kill me. This was Jack Dempsey, one of the most beloved figures in all of sports. Dempsey had to get permission from the mob and pay them, pay them a percentage to open his restaurant. So he knew better than anyone that you weren't going to mess with these guys. So uh, he said uh, they dined at Dempsey's restaurant and no one was able to find out uh, what happened because as usual you know with carbone palermo all they do is say fifth amendment can't be can't be compelled to be a witness against myself so what the public thought of it is represented by the opinion of the television viewers seems to be that for the next six months of our great united states it will stink like a pulp mill town from coast to coast and they said the possible explanation for this putrid affair is that Frankie Carbo, who had a piece of Gavilan without the fighter's approval, nothing Gavilan could have done about it. They would have killed him if he, if he said otherwise, saw that Kid Gavilan was not only getting, uh, um, not going to say smug, but overconfident, but was also slipping rapidly. And to keep control of the title within the hands of the mafia, he had arranged a blinky to pass it to Saxton. So Gavilan was suspicious from the start. And this is what I mentioned before. That's why he said twice before he had to postpone the fight for mumps in an injured hand. Now, here's an interesting thing. Jack Doc Kearns, who managed Gavilan, or excuse me, who managed Jack Dempsey, the great Mickey Walker, the great Archie Moore, um, everyone looks at, you know, Kearns was an historic figure in boxing, but Kearns was also mobbed up. He knew these guys and he, he wasn't going to fight them. You he, he, he got to do business with them. So give them what they want. And, you know, Kearns was supported most of his later life by Archie Moore. Mom had taken Kearns' money too. Although Kearns was a compulsive gambler, lost a lot of it himself. But Kearns told all his friends before in New York that uh, a couple of days before the fight, bet everything on Saxton, he can't lose. He knew the fix was in. Um, many fans who tried to put money on Saxton were told they could only bet on Gavilan. That's another key. This is what Dan Parker wrote. You could go to any bookie and say, I want to put money on Kid Gavilan. We don't take Gavilan bets. Or we don't take Saxton bets, excuse me. We only take Gavilan bets. Bookies didn't want to take any Saxton bets because they didn't want to get wiped out. So uh, after the fight, Blinky Palermo, he writes, this is true, he says there'll be no return match for Gavilan. Well, Palermo was controlling both fighters. Why wouldn't there be a, a, a return match? Didn't want one. And after it, Carbo had a big party, as I said, in his suite, and he entertained everyone. He had good reason to celebrate. So Dan Parker, the wonderful Dan Parker, wrote, the, the criminal number one in boxing in this boxing scandal is Frank Blinky Palermo. You don't understand. This is revolutionary to write this. You understand? This is revolutionary to write this. It would be as revolutionary as the Communist Manifesto was in the 1800s, written by Engels and Freud, uh, or Freud, not Freud, but but um, Marx. It, to name Blinky Palermo imprint and Frankie Carbo, guys just wouldn't do that. They'd rather have a heart attack and die because these guys are vicious killers. Carbo was the one who killed Ben Siegel in in Los Angeles at Virginia Hill's house. These guys were convicted killers. And yet they were still out. They're still out running boxing. No one's doing anything about it. And Palermo, uh, whose arrests range from assault and battery to running a disorderly club 
to murder is reputed the number one racket numbers racket operator in Philadelphia. And despite his record, Blinky runs one of the most active stables of fighters in the U.S. He handled Dan Butcheroni, Coley Wallace, who was, you know, and former lightweight champion Ike Williams. I met Ike Williams. There was no one more bitter than Ike Williams. I met him. This was 40 years after this had happened. And he said, you know, if I was smart, if I had a brain, I would have taken a gun and killed Palermo and Carbo because they stole every cent from me. I had a fight, he said, where I was supposed to get 80 grand and I got 2,500. And when I complained, Carbo or Palermo put a gun in my mouth. He said, these guys were just pure evil. Everyone knew about it. The paper knew about it. The boxing commissions knew about it. The federal government knew about it. The FBI knew about it. No one did anything, which is why Dan Parker and Bud Schober worked so hard you know, to get these guys in print and, and let everyone know this is a criminal enterprise. This is why Jimmy Cannon called boxing the red light district of sports. There was another one uh, where he called, he, he recently called it the, the um, uh, septic tank. Not recently, this is an old quote from Jimmy Cannon. Boxing is the septic tank of uh, professional athletics. And uh, that shows you what it was like. So one of the fighters he had was a guy named Clarence Henry, who was, who was arrested because he, he uh, offered a, a bribe of 15 grand to another fighter to lose on the orders of Palermo. He said, I don't want to do it. And he said to Henry, you do it or you die. And what are you, what are you going to do? And um, uh, boxing. So in 1952, Palermo told the Chicago, the Illinois Boxing Commission, who wouldn't let Ali fight in Chicago years later because he became a Muslim and, and legally refused his right as a conscientious objector to go into the United States Army to fight in an illegal war. Uh, he told the Illinois Boxing Commission, Palermo, I've never been arrested for the last 17 years and don't know why a man can't live it down. Of course, he lied. That wasn't true. In 1950, he was arrested in Philadelphia on charge of reckless use of firearms when he was trying to kill uh, another mob guy. So he, then he mentions mug number two in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia fiasco is Frankie Carbo, who really is mug number one in boxing. Many aliases started his career in Ernest in 1924 when he killed a Bronx butcher about a stolen cab. He was sentenced to seven and a half to 15 years. He was out in less than 10 months. That's because the mob paid them off the parole board. This was the only rap he failed to beat. Um, he came close to a conviction. You know, in the movie uh, Bugsy, where Warren Beatty's character, Ben Siegel, kills Harry Greenberg, played by Elliot Gould. It wasn't Ben Siegel, although he was arrested for it eventually, who, who did that. That was Frankie Carbo who killed him. And Carbo was uh, uh, on the was one of the killers from Murder Incorporated. And he mentions that in the article. He says he, he was employed by Murder Incorporated for a long, long time. So it, it, it's hard to overstate how incredible it is that this article gets written while it's happening. And so what happens to Carbo and Plermos, eventually, eventually they get, they get, I'm getting away from Gavlin and Saxton, but Carbo and Plermo play a big thing in this because they control both men's careers. They eventually go to prison. Doesn't mean Carbo gives up his hold on boxing. Here's the amazing thing. Plermo goes to prison, gets out in 71. Who hires him? Don King. Plamer goes to a, he's in Philadelphia, goes to a local gym, sees all these African-Americans working out in a heavy bag, speed bag, 
skipping rope. And he says, use guys now, use all work for Don King. And that's it. He was 90 at the time, like 91. And one guy walked over and said, sir, I don't know who you are, but we're, we're not boxers. Uses all boxers. Not, we're just getting weekend exercise. We're just professionals, doctors, lawyers, dentists. You know, that's all. We have nothing to do with boxing. Not interested. So, uh, you know, eventually died in Philadelphia. Carbo was paroled, died in Miami in 76. When, when um, the sad thing is Gavilan, when he died, he was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave. But because, because of certain people, such as Angelo Dundee and... Um, he died of a heart attack in 2003. So he's buried in a pauper's grave in Our Lady of Mercy Cemetery in Miami. And the Ring 8 Veterans Association, which I really wish we had uh, uh, ring associations here in Canada for boxers, uh, in 2005, it was a group that included Angelo Dundee, Roberto Duran, Emil Griffith, Ray Mancini, Buddy McGirt, Leon Spinks, and of course, Mike Tyson, uh, paid to have Gavlin's body exhumed and moved to another section of the cemetery and have a, a memorial headstone erected to him, telling you about his life, when he was born, when he died, and all his ring accomplishments. He was a man who deserved to be remembered. Um, it's, it's a sad fight. People, a lot of people dislike Saxton because he was the beneficiary, but it's not really Saxton's fault that the mob did this. It wasn't Saxton's choice to be a mob fighter nor was it Gavlan, although Gavlan's manager, Francisco Bolito, had a guy, as I mentioned, Lopez, who was connected with the mob. And if you didn't have an in with the mob in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, you weren't going to get a world title shot. So that's the story of Gavlan Saxton from uh, October of 1954. As I said, you can see the fight on YouTube. And uh, I hope you didn't mind me reading from the article. But Dan Parker is such a brilliant man. You should look him up and and uh, and read what he's written about boxing because he really laid it out while it was happening. It's rare that somebody does that and calls the mob out. Even today, it's not healthy. But he had no fear, and he did it on a consistent basis. And one of the reasons why eventually federal charges were brought against Carbo and Palermo, and they got convicted. And uh, you know, the reign of terror was over. That's the story of the fight. My name's Lou Eisen. This has been Ring Talk. Thank you very much. And we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.